0: This is New Books in Communication, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm Jeff Pooley from Muhlenberg College, and I am thrilled to have Sarah Bannerman, author of The Struggle for Canadian Copyright Imperialism to Internationalism, 1842 to 1971, on the podcast today. This is New Books and Communication, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm Jeff Pooley from Muhlenberg College, and I'm thrilled to have Sarah Bannerman, author of The Struggle for Canadian Copyright, Imperialism to Internationalism, 1842 to 1971, on the podcast today. Welcome to New Books and Communication, Sarah, and uh, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me.
1: Well, thank you so much.
0: Well, so the struggle for Canadian copyright, which is uh, published by the University of British Columbia Press this year, uh, narrates a pretty complex story of Canada's copyright policy since the mid-19th century. The book details the country's uh, halting attempts to craft a copyright regime that's responsive both to uh, its position as a net importer of published work and to its peculiar uh, political geography as a, as a British dominion bordering the United States. Uh, Sarah charts Canada's early largely unsuccessful effort to craft a less restrictive policy in the run-up to and aftermath of the 1886 Byrne Convention, uh, the multilateral agreement that established the framework for the international copyright system. The main obstacle in the 19th and early 20th centuries was Britain's insistence on a uniform and Byrne-friendly policy throughout the empire, Even as those imperial constraints fell away, Sarah describes how over the first half of the 20th century, Canada increasingly aligned itself with powerful net exporters like France and Britain, in part, she shows to strengthen the country's image as a model international citizen. The struggle for Canadian copyright is a story, in effect, of constraint. Uh, The country's copyright independence was never won. But Bannerman's account also highlights the historical contingency of the restrictive norms that now dominate international IP policy. It's lucid, it's cleanly written, it's a concise account, and it was a pleasure to read. So, Sarah, can you say a a little bit about your background? Uh, If uh, I'm not mistaken, you were trained in communication and uh, uh, now work in a communication department. What led you into this arena of copyright policy?
1: Well, it all started about 15 years ago uh, when the Recording Industry Association of America um, sued Napster, and at that time, um, I was just—I had done an undergraduate degree in music, and I did music composition and songwriting um, myself, uh, you know, in the in the course of my degree and in my own uh, kind of as a hobby. And so, the idea, first of all, uh, that you could download music from the internet—I remember hearing about MP3s and just being blown away by that idea. Um, and then that there was this new intermediary that was out there just really fascinated me. Um, I uh, I had this sense that music making um, could become something really different if it wasn't mediated by the big labels. And I think that's the vision that Napster really brought. Um, if people could uh, communicate recorded music directly with each other. Musical community, uh, and music making could look very different. Um, and so Napster really brought with it this dream that gripped me and it was the reason why I went back to school and the thing that really drove all of my studies from that point on. I wanted to know everything possible and to really understand, uh, the whole situation. Um, of course, what the, what digital music also did was it sparked a great ideological divide, a, a, a fight over copyright. Um, and I became really interested in that. I went back to uh, school to do my master's degree and my PhD at Carleton University in Ottawa, as you say. And then I went on to do uh, a Fulbright postdoc at George Washington University and another postdoc um, at the Australian National University before uh, joining McMaster University in in Canada, um, where I am now. Uh, But in the process of all of this, um, I I also got interested in the international aspects of copyright, because I saw that some of the biggest issues uh, in copyright today and in intellectual property today were not only to do with um, the ability of people in rich countries to download music from the internet, uh, but there were also other issues like access to uh, medicine, um, patent issues, uh, large-scale access to knowledge uh, in poorer countries. Um, and I saw how uh, international law and international relations, uh, were really crucial to how copyright policy was made in Canada and in other countries. And I thought that those huge inequalities between states, uh, were really important in that. And so I became interested in all of those issues, um, as well. And, and also in the history of, of, of Canadian, uh, copyright, um, because in the process of, of, Of my work um, on current issues in Canadian copyright, I realized that there wasn't really uh, um, a book or a good understanding out there of where uh, Canadian copyright history really came from.
0: And so was that the motivation for this book? Was it to sort of fill in the backstory of Canadian copyright that you were working on in the present? I mean, uh, if you could... Speak to that, and also uh, whether it was a dissertation, and if so, um, how did the, the process of transforming it into a book work out?
1: Yeah, this book, uh, this book was my dissertation. Um, and I think from the beginning of writing that dissertation, I had the idea that it would be a book. It, It just, it was a, an important topic. And, uh, I thought we really needed to understand the history of Canadian copyright, but also it, it really was inspired by current events. Um, I was watching what was happening in international copyright today, and I had certain kind of hopes or ideas about canada and what canada's role was or should be and i think that that's really something uh, that's been brought to mind also recently um, the death of nelson mandela has happened recently and one of the uh sort of perspectives that we've been hearing about a lot in canada is canada's role in the anti-apartheid movement and there's a lot of reflection about that now uh, after his death and um and I think Canada did play a, a role in the struggle against apartheid uh, and certain Canadian figures did and Canadian politicians and Canadian groups. And um, and it's very inspiring kind of to think about Canada's ability without being a major power to still at, at on particular issues or at particular points to have influence in the world. Um, uh, Canadian Prime Minister Mulroney showed leadership in calling for sanctions at the UN against South Africa, challenged Thatcher and Reagan privately and publicly on those issues. Um, and and so we've been reminded recently about um, what uh, Canadian leadership can kind of do in particular instances. And there are all kinds of opportunities for leadership today, including in the field of copyright. Um, which is a field where great inequalities do play out. Uh there are countries in the world where it costs a month's salary to buy one legitimate copy of a of an American DVD. And um and so and there are negotiations happening right now and, and, and recently over a lot of these inequalities to try to, to, in, in copyright to try to mitigate them. Um, recently, country delegations gathered to negotiate a new Marrakesh treaty. Um, it's currently estimated that only 5% of works, uh, literary and artistic works or books, are available in accessible format to people who are visually impaired. And the Marrakesh Treaty was an effort to try to end the so-called book famine, uh, partially caused by the fact that copyright law makes it illegal to share accessible formatted books uh, across borders. And so this was an instance where leadership uh, by particular countries and by particular groups, uh, especially India, Brazil, uh, some African countries were really important in leading on this issue to help solve the problem of the book famine for the visually impaired um, internationally. Um, and, and, and it's an inspiring story. And, and um, there are also instances where where leadership has failed uh, and turned out to be a, a mirage. And so in all of these sorts of issues that are currently going on, I asked myself, well, what was Canada's role or what should Canada's role be? Or why is Canada constrained from taking a role in international treaty negotiation on international copyright? And so it was that idea of Canada's potential leadership uh, that kind of inspired me to write um, this book.
0: Great. And we'll take up the substance of the Canadian story in a moment, but I was curious about the methodological challenges you faced. I mean, the book is relatively short and concise, but it takes in over a century. And it's, uh, as you've already heard, it's not just Canada, but involves the world's international copyright system, um, both at Bern and, and in the aftermath, at countless conferences and conventions all around the world. It's a huge mass of materials. It includes published records, uh, public documents, I assume, like the parliamentary record, and also uh, archival resources. I mean, how did you navigate access on the one hand and and limit yourself on the other to um, uh, uh, keep your project within limits and and to keep its coherence as a narrative.
1: Yeah, um, you're right. It does draw on a, a, a huge amount of archival research. Um, and I've made a lot of those documents actually available on a companion site for the book um, where I've uh, – Posted the, the photographed uh, documents uh, many of them that I w- I used in researching the book and you're right I drew on many other sources uh, published records newspaper records even um, and uh, yeah, Hansard and and everything like that. Um, I think the fact that it focuses on international copyright was one way of narrowing things down Uh, rather than trying to focus on every issue that's come up in the history of Canadian copyright. I really focused on the international ones uh, and Canada's relationship with the Berne convention. And that also allowed me to zero in on particular points in time uh, points where Canada joined the Berne convention, convention, attempted to denounce the Berne Convention, and then at the various revision conferences of the Berne Convention as well, uh, which happened about every 20 years. So it provides certain narrow kind of points in time uh, where I can, I could focus my research um, sort of throughout that century.
0: Right. Well, to, to set up the discussion, I, I was hoping you could provide a kind of overview. You know, you tell the story of various alternative copyright proposals that were either stalled or half implemented or thwarted in lots of cases. It's basically a story of paths not taken in a way. Um, and I thought maybe you could explain your subtitle. And it has those two terms. You're really uh, uh, describing a, an arc from imperialism to internationalism in terms of the constraints that Canada faced. And so if you could just explain that arc.
1: Sure. Um, the story starts in 1842, really, when um, British, um, the British imperial government uh, made the decision that imperial copyright would apply throughout all of the colonies of the British Empire. Uh, and so that meant that uh, for the first time, British copyright was effective in in Canada. Um, So there was that layer of imperial copyright going on in Canada. Uh, But the other layer was the fact that, uh, of course, Great Britain had the power to um, not enact, to refuse to enact Canadian legislation um, or to uh, require that it be modified or whatever, um, or refuse it uh, royal assent. So there were all kinds of layers of control by imperial copyright applying in Canada and also by the control that the imperial government had over Canadian legislation. And that's really where the story starts. Uh, but then where the story goes is that um, as Canada gradually gained uh, independence over its own legislation, um, Canada what was also forming at the same time was this system of international copyright. And part of the argument of the book is that the international copyright system really took on many of the functions that the imperial copyright system had performed before that. Um, It ensured uniformity among uh, countries uh, as to how copyright would look, uh, what the standards of copyright would be, uh, what kinds of rights copyright holders would be granted. Um, And it also uh, uh kind of um allowed the core of copyright producing countries copyright exporters to maintain um uh control over the international copyright system and have to have real advantages um over the more peripheral countries uh to prevent policies that would have allowed more peripheral countries like Canada to get a bigger slice of the publishing pie or the later the, um, the larger cultural industry pie.
0: Great. So that, that really is the sort of story you tell. And the, the transition period is sometime, you know, after World War I, it seems to me. But let's go back for a moment into the 19th century. And just to set the scene, I mean, the, the Byrne Convention of 1886 plays such a central role in your story and obviously in the, the story of international copyright. And so could you just explain what it was and its significance?
1: Yeah. The Berne Convention was the first real multilateral Copyright Treaty, uh, in the sense that it was the first one that any country could join. Uh, There are other sort of multi-country intellectual property or copyright treaties before the Berne Convention, but it was the first really broad one. Um, And it did two things. Um, The first thing it it did was it granted international copyright on a national treatment basis. Um, So it required that countries would treat foreign nationals the same as they treated domestic, uh, nationals. So it meant that say an American, uh, book would be granted copyright on the same, uh, basis as a Canadian book would be granted copyright in Canada, that Canadian copyright would, would protect both of those books in the same way. Um, and that all countries would do that. Um, and the second thing that it did was it set a number of 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 uh, minimum standards as to what copyright would look like and what rights copyright holders would have over their works uh, so it would grant uh, it now grants for example a minimum term of protection of the life of the author plus another fifty years um, It uh, required that countries could not make uh, copyright conditional on the completion of formalities such as registering the work or having the work printed in a particular country. Those types of formalities were forbidden ultimately under the Berne Convention. Um, now an American DVD is protected under Canadian copyright law whether or not it was manufactured in Canada. So it sets those kinds of minimum standards.
0: Okay, great. So then we uh, enter the point when uh, Canada, well, in a way, was a kind of reluctant, almost accidental signatory. And it wasn't really a signatory, since it was the the British who acceded to the the Union in 1886. But maybe you could say something about the resistance that came after Canada through the, the empire Joined the Berne Convention, uh, uh, resistance to the the kind of copyright treaty, uh, including the attempt a few years later to basically back out of Berne. What drove the resistance, and uh, and why was the issue of compulsory licensing such a a flashpoint?
1: Well, what really drove Canada's resistance to the Berne Convention was uh, American resistance to the Berne Convention. Uh, and to international copyright in general. Um, the United States didn't grant international copyright at all until 1891. And so at the point where the Berne Convention was founded, the United States didn't recognize international copyright at all. So that meant that American printers and publishers, because that was the main uh, copyright industry at the time, could freely and legally reprint uh, foreign books, say British books or whatever without permission from the british copyright holder and that was perfectly legal. um and it was tied to an american policy of um encouraging um political debate of um education of of, of free speech of uh ensuring access to foreign works for um its people. and so um canada at that time uh, uh for its part, did have international copyright under imperial copyright law. Uh, uh, and so that was the real tension. Canada was kind of torn between uh, the British, between, I guess, wanting to, to respect international copyright, uh, but being situated right beside this neighbour uh, that wasn't, um, that wasn't, constrained by international copyright. And Canada was uh, in in a similar economic situation with the U.S. as well. It was uh, developing, it was trying to establish domestic industries to ensure uh, education uh, for its people. And Canada was very different from the European countries at that time. Uh, We didn't have a system of, of libraries at the time. And so if you wanted to read books, you had to buy them. And so um, what happened was the Americans could reprint uh, very cheap editions of British books, um, and those books would be imported into Canada. Canada and Canadian printers and publishers on, for their part were constrained by international copyright and therefore couldn't compete with the American reprinters and the imports of books that were coming into Canada. And so that was the real source of of the problem for Canadian printers and publishers. Um, They couldn't compete. They couldn't through competing accumulate capital to be able to uh, grow. And so what happened when copyright law was imposed on Canada was that those American reprint inexpensive books were forbidden from being imported into Canada. For a period of time, it was um, a copyright infringement under imperial copyright law to import those inexpensive American editions of British books. And so Canadians uh, lost uh, an important source uh, of inexpensive books. And so that was a real problem uh, for Canadians, uh, for the printers and publishers who couldn't compete, and also for consumers. And so the, the compromise solution was that The British allowed those imports from the U.S. to come in again if the Americans paid a tariff of 12.5%. The Canadians would collect this tariff, and then that would be fine uh, under imperial copyright law, which was changed to allow this. So now the Americans could legally sell, um, basically, I mean, pirated, but it was legal, books in the Canadian market, by paying this 12.5% tariff. And what the Canadian printers and publishers wanted was to be able to do the same thing uh, under a compulsory license rather than a tariff. So they wanted to be able to, um, without asking permission from the copyright holder, they wanted to just be able to go through the Canadian government uh, to be able to pay the 12.5% royalty and that way to be able to kind of compete on the same playing field with the American printers and publishers.
0: Great. And so this was the situation, you know, leading up to and then, of course, after Burn. And uh, as I mentioned before, as the book details, there was this attempt to sort of back out of Burn, uh, in effect. And this didn't really succeed in the long run. Uh, and, and you tell the story of how the British basically forced Canada's hand uh, over the next couple of decades. And if you could just briefly describe uh, uh, what happened.
1: Yeah, um, what happened was Canada... Um, decide, the sort of the conservative government at the time in 1886 decided to implement the Berne Convention and they knew it would be controversial. Uh, but Prime Minister Macdonald, who was Canada's first prime minister, saw Canada as being united with, subservient to, but, um, but united with and, and supporting, uh, imper- the British Empire. And, I think that the Conservatives thought it would be embarrassing if this debate about basically legalizing piracy in a way uh, came out in Canada and if that played out in in Parliament. And so when the Liberal opposition called for debate in Canadian Parliament about all of these questions, about compulsory licensing, about copyright in general, and about the Berne Convention, The Conservatives in power just shut that down. Uh, It was not debated in Parliament. They said, let's discuss it after the Berne Convention is kind of together. And so the Liberals uh, in opposition backed down and there was no debate held in Canadian Parliament about the Berne Convention. In fact, um, the opposition didn't really know where the Berne Convention was at. In fact, the Canadian government really wasn't all that informed about what was happening with the negotiation of the Berne Convention leading up to 1886. Um, Instead, they were kind of informed at the last minute uh, about the Berne Convention about the fact that the imperial government wanted to implement the Berne Convention. And they were kind of sent uh, a package and said, uh, do you consent to join the Berne Convention? And they could have said no, um, but uh, Prime Minister Macdonald, uh, uh, from his library uh, in his uh, mansion, said, um, sent a short telegram, uh, six words that kind of sealed Canada's copyright fate. Uh, Canada consents to enter copyright convention, and from that point on, uh, there wasn't any. Uh, uh, almost point in debating the question of compulsory licensing or the question of trying to equalize the situation with the United States because Canada was now signed on. Um, But what happened when um, the, uh, the, Justice Minister Thompson announced implementation of the Berne Convention and and Canada's intention to uh, enact new legislation that would conform with the Berne Convention and which would not have included the compulsory licensing provision, was that there was a huge uproar. And uh, the printing and publishing industry was up at arms and sent a delegation to Ottawa to talk to Thompson. And um, and uh, he, who turned around, who did a huge about-face overnight uh, and moved instead to enact a very different legislation, which did include the compulsory licensing provision and also included a request to the imperial government that Canada uh, would denounce the Berne Convention. Canada didn't have the sufficient independence to denounce the Berne Convention itself, but it requested that the, Ber- that the imperial government do that on Canada's behalf, um, and uh, that kind of sat in limbo and intention uh, in, intention between Canada and the imperial government for years. Uh, the Canadian Copyright Act uh, that contained these provisions was unanimously passed in the Canadian Parliament, um, but because the act was not compatible with the Berne Convention, um, the the Canada would have had to denounce it. And what the British were afraid of was that if Canada denounced the Berne Convention, this was in 1889 now, just three years after the whole thing was formed, um, the British were afraid that other countries would follow suit and that the entire Berne Convention would break apart um, as other colonies especially followed Canada's lead. And so uh, imperial power was used to uh, not uh, allow this Canadian Copyright Act that had been unanimously passed in Canadian Parliament to come into force. And the British government just never moved to denounce the Berne Convention on Canada's behalf. So um, uh, Prime Minister Thompson, who had been the Justice Minister and was now the Prime Minister, wrote long letters to Britain. Uh, he got very angry. He refused to meet uh, British representatives over this issue. Uh, and he ultimately went to London to negotiate on the copyright issue. And it looked like progress was being made. But at Windsor Castle on December twelfth, 1894, Prime Minister Thompson died of a heart attack Uh right there on that visit and his body was returned home to Canada in a boat with the sides painted black and the dream of Canadian copyright sovereignty um, was never realized.
0: Great. Well, uh, you know, the, the story uh, picks up again in the aftermath of World War One, and it's a really fascinating period in part because Canada, you know, with all of its sacrifices and uh, loyalty in the war, won more autonomy and kind of de facto independence from the British. And yet at the same time, uh, there were demands for, uh, you know, cultural protections for, from uh, American cultural goods. And and Canada was producing its own uh, flood of new non-print, you know, oral and visual media products in in the kind of burgeoning culture industry. There's lots of debate going on in this interwar period, confusion, and despite holding on uh it seems to me uh to certain kind to the compulsory licensing policies on paper Canada joined the bern union uh on its own um and and basically in this in the long run accepted the norms of the international system and not because of the british really right Be- but but instead because it was interested at least in part to shape its image um as a kind of international player if you could talk about that
1: yeah well what happened uh at one point in between here, uh, while well, the U.S. started to um, it, it recognize international copyright, but on the condition that uh, the book was uh, reprint or um, was manufactured in the U.S., and so the issue shifted away from the compulsory licensing question to the question of domestic manufacture. Um, the U.S. could require books to be printed in, in the U.S., um, and Canada couldn't. Uh, because the Berne Convention forbade that uh, it was a formality that was forbidden under the Berne Convention, so that was the real issue and and in nineteen eleven uh, there was an imperial copyright conference where the British Empire got together and said, "What are we going to do about copyright and Canada kind of stood up in that uh, uh, at that point in time and said, "We want um, to be able to have." Canadian legislation on copyright, uh, sovereignty over the copyright issue. And a lot of the British uh, colonies didn't want that, and Great Britain wanted a certain level of conformity on the copyright issue. So what was decided was that uh, British uh, dominions or colonies would be allowed to legislate uh, themselves on copyright if their legislation... Was substantially similar to the British legislation. And so that was the groundwork, uh, that we were working on after World War I and, uh, and in the 1920s when Canada finally did move to, uh, legislate on copyright. But the interesting thing that happened in between was part of that deal in 1911 was that Canada wanted to be able to, um, to negotiate reciprocal copyright with the United States. Uh, If the United States required domestic manufacture, Canada wanted to be able to require domestic manufacture as well, in a way. Um, And so we required the Berne Convention to be modified for that. And it was modified. The amazing thing is that uh, in 1914, the British were wanting Canada to update their copyright laws, And Canada said, We can't, we need this provision that you promised us in 1911 at the Imperial Copyright Conference. And so Great Britain actually contacted all of the other countries of the Berne Convention and said, Look, we need this provision for Canada. Uh, We have to modify the Berne Convention, otherwise, we're out. And so all the countries got together and modified and created this. relatively minor provision exception kind of to the Berne convention that would have allowed canada or that did allow canada um to grant or not grant copyright to uh countries that did not protect copyright on a similar basis and uh uh, By that, Canada really meant the United States. Um, And that allowed Canada, ultimately, in um, 1923-24, when it did finally uh, update its copyright law, to um, put in place compulsory licensing provisions that really applied against Canada and countries that were not members of the Berne Union, like the United States. And what the provision said was, Although formalities are not normally allowed under the Berne Convention, um, in the case of countries that are not members of the Berne Convention and that do not protect copyright in the same way, such as the United States, which requires domestic manufacture, um, in those cases, uh, anyone can apply for a compulsory license uh, to be able to. Uh, get a Canadian copyright for those works. So Canadians, technically, under the new law of 1924, uh, which in all respects, almost all respects, was almost word for word, a copy of the British legislation. So it met that requirement of being substantially similar to the to the British legislation, but it, it contained that little exception with compulsory licensing that could apply against Americans, uh, so that a, a Canadian, for example, could get a license from the Canadian government to reprint a, an, an American work. And It's my understanding that that provision, although it was fought for, and the debates that went on and on in Canadian Parliament over this question uh, was never actually used. Uh, But nevertheless, the provision was there, and it showed that uh, kind of modicum of copyright sovereignty in what otherwise was a direct copy of British legislation.
0: Okay, excellent. That was an important uh, clarification. Okay, good. And, you know, uh, thinking about the post World War II period, uh, as you describe in the book, there were just massive changes in the copyright system, and in particular, you know, after the wave of decolonizations in the, starting in the mid '50s, uh, you know, a number of newly independent states uh, were you know, party to or in engaged negotiations around issues of copyright and other IP issues, and in, in particular, there. Uh, arose, especially in the this mid-60s, a kind of development agenda. Um, and uh, th- the issues around burn and copyright crested in 1967 in uh, the, in a meeting at Stockholm uh, uh, in, in the aftermath of which led to a kind of crisis in the international system. And so I thought maybe you could just set the scene about what happened in 1967 and in the aftermath, but but especially Canada's somewhat awkward role where uh, it, uh, at times, it would flirt with the idea of classifying itself as a developing country or aligning itself with developing countries. At other times, and maybe more persistently, uh, uh, defining itself as a middle power. Um, and then ultimately, in practice, aligning itself with uh, the more powerful net exporters. Uh, so, so anyway, if you could just talk about that 1967 uh, a, a conference in the aftermath.
1: Yeah, well I argue that and and Escobar has argued that um that development became the kind of new purpose of international institutions around the 50s. Um and that was true in copyright as well. Um whereas up to that point um development it it's it had been mentioned in the history of Canadian copyright copyright as a tool of industrial development in Canada and that kind of thing um but it wasn't a central focal point in um international copyright until uh the 1950s and 60s when decolonization was going on and all kinds of new newly independent countries were emerging and the question arose at that point of time it was how will the Bern Convention deal with these new countries that are newly independent and that have, uh, in a large number, been part of the Bern Union as colonies, and a lot of those countries um, had new demands uh, if they were going to be part of the Bern Union, and the Bern Union really faced a, an identity crisis at that point. Uh, will we? Kind of be this high standard of international copyright that's really aimed at the, uh, the most highly developed countries, uh, although I don't like that term, but anyway, or will, uh, we try to kind of lower the standards of international copyright in order to be a big tent kind of format of international copyright? Around that same time, uh, what there was a competing international copyright convention that was formed called the universal copyright convention. And it, uh, uh, the, the Berne union was worried that that convention would become the, well, the universal convention and the, the burn convention would sort of fade into obsolescence or something like that. So they decided to take the big tent approach and to kind of try to, uh, also, uh, meet the demands of, newly independent, uh, developing countries. Um, and at that time, the whole question of what was a developing country was actually still up in the air, uh, and was being discussed. What, what defines a developing country was a question that was still kind of an open question. And Canada in This all of this time from the 1920s had become kind of disengaged from international copyright. Um, It seems that uh, the bureaucracies were actually not really following closely what was happening, even at the time of the uh, formation of the Universal Copyright Convention. And um, different advisory commissions in Canada had kind of advised that while Canada is a net copyright importer that's not really well served by higher and higher copyright standards because what happens with higher standards of international copyright is that we end up paying more royalties out of the country. And so that was kind of... Canada was kind of drifting along like that. Um, but when the developing countries and the newly independent countries started demanding uh, new provisions in international copyright, they started demanding... Um, looser translation requirements so that domestic producers could produce translations into many different languages of works. Um, they started to, uh, require that, uh, to, to request, uh, exceptions so that, uh, educational institutions could make copies of works without having to pay huge amounts of royalties to rich countries and those kinds of things. Um, And Canada started asking itself, and and certain particular bureaucrats started asking themselves, well, where is Canada in all of this, and what kind of position should Canada take? And in 1967, Canada wasn't all that involved, but the settlement that was come to when the Berne Convention was revised that year were some fairly radical exceptions for things like education uh, in developing countries, that developing countries would be able to make copies of works for educational purposes, for example, without uh, worrying about copyright um, royalties or rights or anything like that. Um, and after that settlement was come to there was a huge uh, outcry internationally from rights holder groups. And they hated these huge exceptions, what they saw as huge exceptions for developing countries. Um, and at that time, Canada was kind of asking itself, what should, what position should Canada take? And there were certain um, Canadian politicians and bureaucrats who proposed that Canada was actually a developing country because we were a net copyright importer and therefore also benefited from looser international copyright provisions that maybe Canada should try to get classified as well uh, under uh, as a developing country. Uh, and of course, this idea really went nowhere in the end. Uh, 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 some of the diplomats who were in control of the decision-making at this time sort of said, could we tone this down because it's... Uh, it's kind of the idea of Canada as a developing country is it will be seen with derision on the international stage. But at the same time, there was this tension, and, and negot- when, when 1971 came along and the 1967 settlement had not been accepted, it had to be renegotiated in 1971, Canada had a position by that point, and it, the position was uh, that Canada would try to kind of support uh, the developing countries position, um, but kind of sort of stay in the middle. Uh, and there was an effort actually to try to create a coalition of middle countries like Canada. Um, Canada declared itself to be in the middle between developing and developed countries and to understand, uh, both sides, to have a special perspective, understanding both sides. Um, and Canada really, um, uh, wasn't successful in forming a coalition of middle powers um, uh, on these issues and uh, the settlement that was come to that was was made at that point was much more restrictive and um, the exceptions that were made in nineteen seventy one uh, did come into effect but were so restrictive really uh, that they were very rarely, if ever, used by developing countries.
0: And that really brings us to the end of the substance uh, of your narrative. You really close the book uh, uh, in 1971 in that kind of renegotiation of the 1967 arrangements. Uh, but you do, in your conclusion, trace uh, the period after 1971, including the incorporation of uh, the new World Intellectual Property Organization, which became a UN agency and uh, took on the Berne Convention and other um, IP-related portfolios. And you you talk about this post-1971 period, including the way in which the United States' copyright policy became more expansionist and restrictive. And in this period, it seems that Canada... Uh, uh, hasn't pressed its middle power, intermediate position uh, uh, agenda much. Instead, it has uh, aligned itself with the net exporting countries like the United States more uh, uh, unambiguously. And so I don't know if that's fair as a characterization, and if so, uh, what happened?
1: Um, Yeah, after 1971, Canadian creator groups uh, I guess became the more dominant voice in Canadian copyright policy making. Uh, it's, it's interesting because there were certain points in time, in 1889, for example, or in 1967, uh, where, or in 71, where the kind of user groups, uh, the groups calling for exceptions, uh, the groups calling for Lower standards of international copyright, if I put it that way, um, were dominant. But after 1971, uh, that was no longer the case. And the creator groups, uh, the copyright holder groups, uh, were really much, much more uh, dominant and much more, um, I guess, vocal and sort of won uh, more of the copyright battles. And I think that is true right up until uh, the debates over digital copyright in in the 2000s um and in the late 90s um and i think that what's going to be really interesting is right now there are a number of uh fascinating treaties on exceptions which uh are very new there in the past international copyright almost always dealt with primarily with the rights granted to rights holders. But with the Marrakesh Treaty uh, uh, dealing with the visually impaired exceptions, and there are other treaties currently in negotiation at WIPO for uh, exceptions for libraries and educational institutions and that kind of thing, uh, it'll be very interesting to see what Canada's position is on those uh, issues and, and how that plays out. Canada has done some interesting, although... Uh, Canada has in a large part followed uh, many of the United States provisions. It also has carved out a certain amount of um, its own road or its own way on certain issues. Uh, The current Canadian Copyright Act has certain provisions for user-generated content that allow people to make non-commercial use of user-generated content on certain stipulations. And that's kind of an interesting made-in-Canada approach. Um, Canada also has interesting made-in-Canada approaches on ISP liability um, and also uh, was one of the first countries to put in place certain exceptions for the visually impaired, even before the Marrakesh Treaty came along. And they're very limited, but... Um, but Canada has been able to kind of do its own thing on certain um, relatively minor items. And we've also held so far to the now relatively shorter term of protection of life of the author plus 50 years. Um, right now, one of the treaties uh, being negotiated is the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, which is a trade agreement uh, that includes intellectual property provisions. And, recent leaks have revealed that Canada, along with other countries, has been resisting some of the American proposals for uh, what some see as kind of more draconian intellectual property provisions under that uh, treaty. And so we can still see some elements of Canadian kind of independence uh, there uh, in in those negotiations. But I think it's still fair to say that For a large part, Canada does uh, kind of toe the line in many instances um, uh, on international copyright and on international intellectual property um, uh, provisions. Uh, For example, the development issue has become very, very prominent at the World Intellectual Property Organization, WIPO, and in the debates over how prominent development should be in WIPO as an agenda, Um, Canada really somewhat resisted the development agenda uh, along with the United States and the european union and i've written about that in another paper canada and the development agenda at wipo um so in many cases i think it's fairly fair to say that canadian participation has been uh, in line with uh, american and european uh, participation it hasn't very often if ever really been in line with the developing coal country coalition um and um And in a sense, I think what Canadian participation does in many senses is it allows Canada to perform its role as being uh, part of this international community of sort of great powers. Um, And also it lends legitimacy to uh, these negotiations uh, to, say, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement and and those sorts of things.
0: And one of the Points you stress throughout the book, especially in the beginning and the end, uh, has to do with the contingency of both Canada's decision making along the way and the the shape that you know IP and copyright in particular. Uh, in its policy orientation has taken, uh, that it didn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to stay that way, that there's a sort of historical contingency uh, uh, that you've even kind of captured in speculating with some mild optimism uh, uh, about Canada's ability to carve out something like a a middle power exceptionalism perhaps uh, going into the future when it comes to uh, copyright and other i p issues if if only in a limited way, but so uh, I don't know if you want to say something about that that contingency, the fact that another s- set of policies is possible even if it seems unlikely
1: mhm yeah, there, well, what's interesting is that there have been so many points in time where Canada in its early years almost achieved copyright independence, could have achieved copyright independence. There are points in time. Canada could have had copyright independence um, in, uh, in the 1880s if certain events hadn't transpired, if certain bureaucrats hadn't kind of intervened. Um, and it just so happened that uh, a bureaucrat was there in charge of copyright who happened to um, ha- have a thing for the Canadian um, authors of the future that, that saw international copyright, indeed saw imperial copyright as being in the interests of Canadian uh, authors of the future who at that time Canadian authors were not publishing internationally, so imperial copyright and international copyright did nothing for them. But um, th- this bureaucrat had this vision of the future and therefore sort of th- thwarted uh, Canadian copyright independence. Um, and... Same thing in, in the 1971. If certain bureaucrats hadn't intervened and said, boy, Canada's going to look really silly on the international stage if we claim to be a, an, a developing country. Um, who knows where that policy might have got to. But I, I think, I mean, you say that I'm optimistic about a kind of middle power exceptionalism, and I'm not really very optimistic. I think there's room for Canada to carve out certain exceptions to carve out certain uh, Canadianisms in international copyright, and even for some of those to be taken up by other countries. Um, uh, after all, domestic legislation is really a source of innovation in innovation policy and uh, can be taken up in certain instances. But I also think that Canada's and Canadian policymakers and Canadian diplomats are under enormous pressure from international interest groups and from uh, the Americans um, and uh, and the Europeans and other copyright exporters to to toe the line. And I think that now that copyright and intellectual property is tied in so much with the trade agenda, uh, I think that copyright is one thing that Canada and other uh, net copyright importers uh, has to... Kind of trade off uh, for other issues um, in order to be part of trade regimes and things like that. So I'm actually not very uh, optimistic about Canada's potential for leadership. Um, now I see Canada as being too much in the middle to really lead in any direction. And I see countries like Brazil and India really playing the leadership roles um, on the one side, and then uh, Europe and um, and America playing the leadership roles on the other side of this real kind of ideological divide about copyright.
0: Okay, fair enough. That That is an important uh, clarification. So, you know, you've already brought up the work you're doing or have done recently on Canada's role at WIPO. I mean, is there a project that you're working on now that Uh, is it in fact related to these issues uh, um, going on in multilateral negotiations, treaties that you've been mentioning?
1: Yeah. Well, after I realized, originally I thought that Canada's copyright history was going to be very dry and uh, uninteresting. But what I discovered through doing the research for this book was that Canada's story about international copyright was really unlike any other story I had read. It was this story of rebellion. It was um, uh, Canada's uh, uh, rebellion had threatened the Berne Convention in its earliest days. And overlooking at Canada's history, I kind of wondered to myself, would I see something similar if I looked at other uh, countries who don't play a, a prominent role in the typical histories of international copyright? What about Australia and New Zealand? What about Haiti? What about Burkina Faso? Uh, were those histories as dry and uneventful as their kind of near absence from the dominant story of international copyright would seem to indicate? And so now what I'm working on is a history of international copyright that tries to look at those other countries and to tell an almost anti history of international copyright.
0: Wow, that sounds like a wonderful project. I'm really looking forward to it. Maybe uh, we could have you on again. Uh, So, so thank you so much for taking the time to talk about the book. And congratulations again on a superb, fascinating book. Uh, I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much.
0: You've been listening to New Books in Communications. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.